Welcome to the Vail Christian Church Podcast. This week, Pastor Ben Pitney has a message titled, Not a Conglomeration, from Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 29. At Vail Christian Church, we believe in training followers of Christ to worship, gather, give, and serve. great day today. Um, I'm excited about what we're going to talk about. Take your Bible out and turn to Matthew chapter 26. Now there's 29 verses that we're going to go through. I'm going to do my best to travel through them really quickly, but I really want you to see some things that I think uh, as, as I'm singing these worship songs, I'm just seeing how God uh, weaves his brilliance through the worship songs and the scriptures that we're going to talk about and the things that he uh, wants to communicate to us. And in particular today, what I'm struck by is uh, the sovereignty of God and um, just how much the scriptures are about God, they're not about us. We read the scriptures thinking they're about us so often, but the scriptures are this grand, magnificent story that is really all about God and, and, and how he wants to reveal himself. So in particular today, what we're going to see is that Matthew is trying to um, create some suspense. He's, uh, there are some things that he wants us to recognize and realize, and all the gospel authors um, are doing that, and they're doing it just a little bit different. Okay, so when you read the Gospels, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in particular, all right, they demonstrate carefully that all the authors try to make sure that they are demonstrating carefully that the death of Jesus is not only the purpose of God, but he is doing it on purpose. Does that make sense? And it's his doing. It's his doing. Sometimes, you know, we can read and and. And uh, the stories seem to indicate that um, somebody killed Jesus and they set out to do it. This is not necessarily true. In spite of the opposition, God is doing something. The text we're looking at today is not an unrelated conglomeration of stories. It's not that. It's carefully laid out, demonstrating, like I said, the sovereignty of God in bringing about Jesus' death as the prophecy of God. It just really strikes me, and it motivates me and challenges me, and that's what I want it to do with you, okay? Because we've got to read our Bibles. It just unearths so many things, and so there's a tension here that Matthew is creating. Let's look at chapter 26. We're going to read through all 29 verses, but I'm just going to take, take them just little pieces at a time. So let's read the first five verses first. It says, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he told his disciples, you know that after two days, and that two days thing is important from Matthew, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people met together in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas. They planned to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast. That's really, really key. Matthew's pointing that out. So that there won't be a riot 
among the people. All right, let's just take those first five because something or someone has to give because already we see Jesus is saying, I'm going to be crucified in two days and it's going to be during the Passover. But the high priest and Caiaphas and all these leaders of the uh, Jewish law, these guys are like, no, 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 let's wait till after the Passover and then we're going to kill him and we're going to do it privately in stealth, right? So the first two verses of Matthew contain the Lord's declaration regarding his imminent death. That's really important. Matthew wants us to see some things, just like I said. I believe Jesus wants us to view his impending crucifixion in the light of the larger plan. And a lot of times we don't look at the larger plan. We get all buried in the verses, and as, as we should sometimes. But there's a bigger plan here, and he just outlined it. The cross is a part of God's all-encompassing plan of redeeming fallen man, sinful man, and to glorify himself. He's going to be able to do both. Redeem sinful man and glorify himself at the same time because he's God. He's brilliant. Also, Jesus speaks of his death and he does this like it's something his disciples already know. And there's reasons for that. I want you to look at verse 2. Look at verse 2 and you're going to need your Bible today because we're going to flip around. And uh, so open it up. Don't, Don't resist that. Just open it up. You know that every two days, it says verse 2, after two days, excuse me, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be delivered up for crucifixion. So the possibility of Jesus' death, it had stressed out his guys, his disciples. And it's been doing it for some time, actually. Think of all the attempts on his life. Now, I'm not going to point them all out today, but if you just do a little study on the attempts on Jesus' life up to this point, it's kind of shocking. You may not realize. I mean, he is having to avoid being killed over and over again, right? I find seven or eight uh, instances. So his guys are always stressed out. Hey, we can't stay here. Hey, we got to go here. Hey, we got to move on. People are trying to kill you, all right? So when they gather together in Galilee, Jesus tells them the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. He says that in chapter 17. In chapter 20, he says, look, we're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the experts of the law. They're going to condemn him to death. He will turn them over to the Gentiles and be mocked and flogged severely and crucified. Yet on the third day, he'll be raised. In Matthew 16, 21, Jesus informs his disciples that he's, he's, he would suffer and die in Jerusalem and then be raised from the dead on the third day. He also indicates that he would suffer at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and scribes. And in Matthew 17, 22, he said that he would be betrayed. In Matthew 20, verse 18 and 19, Jesus said that he would be handed over to the Gentiles and he'd be crucified. And all these things the disciples knew or should have known because Jesus had told them. Now in Matthew 26, in the first two verses, Jesus underscores two really important details regarding his his death. The first isn't new. He's going to be crucified. The second detail, though, it's new. He'll be crucified during Passover. And I'm pointing this out on purpose because Matthew's pointing it out. The death of Jesus is a couple of days away, and his death will be by crucifixion 
a very public death. That's the way crucifixion is. It's very, very public. So already you can see the tension, right? Something or someone has to give because Caiaphas and his guys, they want it to be stealthy and secret and private after the Passover. A couple of weeks later, they don't want to riot, but what's Jesus saying? During the Passover, very public. So that's the tension. This is really significant. It just is. You cannot underestimate the significance of this. Now, go to verse 3, 4, and 5, because through his earthly ministry, throughout, Jesus is opposed by these scribes and Pharisees. But now the most powerful Jews in Israel, they've taken up the cause as Caiaphas, and we know from John's gospel, after the raising of Lazarus, they, Lazarus, they meet to discuss how to deal with Jesus and his popularity among the people. So when you read John chapter 11, and I'm not going to read it uh, right now, but John chapter 11 started about verse 47 through 53, all right, you're going to see John has a perspective that he's pointing out that Matthew's not necessarily featuring because Jesus was becoming so popular and so powerful among the people that the religious leaders realized if he's not stopped, everybody will believe in him. So we got to stop this guy. What a testimony to the fact that Jesus was Messiah. The religious leaders know that if Jesus wins the crowds over, they're going to lose their position of prominence, power. They're going to lose their position of prestige. So the Romans are willing to let them rule so as long as they maintain law and order. And Jesus appeared to be a threat to the status quo. All right. So now it's Caiaphas, that guy, that worm, right? The high priest, he uh, proposed that Jesus has got to be killed. After Jesus' triumphal entry and taking possession of Jerusalem and the temple. Remember, Jesus comes in. He goes straight to the temple. He kicks the money changers out of the Gentile court. He stirs it up. He gets really angry. He says, you can't be blocking and clogging up the Gentile court. I want those people, those people, that, that place is set aside for those people to come and pray and to meet with God and, and, and find the Lord. Oh, my goodness. You know, because after he runs those people out of there, what happens? He immediately starts healing people and caring about people right there in the Gentile court. So, oh man, that really pushes people over the edge. So here's the dilemma. Jesus tells his disciples he died during Passover in just two days. The Jewish leaders agree that he's got to be killed for, um, but in two weeks, Jesus said that he'd die by crucifixion and earlier that the Romans would be involved. In other words, Jesus indicates his death is going to be brought about in a really, really public manner. It would also involve a lot of suffering. And the Jewish leaders proposed to wait until after the feast. Jesus says he's got to die during the feast as the Passover lamb. Somebody's not going to get their way. Somebody's not going to get their way. Do you like getting your way? I like getting my way. 
I like for my plans to work out the way I plan them. Delta Airlines just sent me an, air, uh, uh, an email. Lynn and I have planned this uh, trip to see my son and his wife. And there's a bunch of connecting flights. I made these reservations two months ago. Delta just sent me in uh, um, an email that said, hey, all your times for coming and going are all changed. And it messed everything up. And at the end, there's a line at the end of the bottom of the email, and it says, if you want to cancel your trip, you're welcome to do that. Because this is the way it's going to go. <laughs> I do not like my plans getting changed around like that. I like to plan it, and I, like, it's, and I want to turn out like I want. Everybody here involved is the same way. Somebody's not going to get their way, though, right? Somebody's going to have to give way to the other. This is the tension that Matthew sets up at the beginning of the events leading up to the cross. It's a tension that Matthew wants us to feel. He wants us to get this tension. There's a reason, and I think it's because we want it to turn out like we want it to. That's the way it is with all of us. That's what Matthew's trying to do. He wants his readers to pay attention to whose plans are fulfilled and whose plans are not fulfilled. Be careful about your plans. If Jesus is, is to die, as he said, as a prophecy has required, he's got to do so against the plans and the efforts of the most powerful Jewish, Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. And there's things that he wants to do in your life and my life Be careful about how you plan. You know, a lot of times what we do is we plan things and then we say, Lord, would you bless it? And that is a bad way to plan. God's got to be in the middle of the plans or they're not his plans or your plans. My plans never work out very good. I promise you, these guys' plans? <laughs> Who do you think is going to win? Well, we already know because we've heard enough. We've read enough of the book. Let's move on to verse 6 through 13. Look at verses 6 through 13. Oh, this is a great scene. Now, while Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of expensive perfume oil, and she poured it out on his head as he was at the table. When the disciples saw this, they became indignant, really upset, and said, why this waste? It could have been sold at the... At a, at a high price, and the money given to the poor. When Jesus learned of this, he said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a good service for me. For you'll always have the poor with you, but you'll, you will not always have me. When she poured this oil on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, what... Wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. That's really significant. Don't just gloss over that because we just actually celebrated this today. I mean, this is crazy. 
that there's worship and whining going on at the same time. You got that, right? When you read John chapter 12, there's eight verses there. John gives us a little bit different story. It's pretty amazing. The meal takes place six days before Passover. Well, Jesus' word in Matthew 26 verses 1 and 2 were spoken two days before Passover. Matthew tells us about an unnamed woman who anoints Jesus with precious perfumed oil. John tells us that this woman is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. We're not surprised because this dinner was served in Bethany where Lazarus and his sister lived. Matthew names only one person in this account, totally different than John. He names Simon the leper. A man whose name we don't even really recognize. All others are nameless in Matthew's account. Not so with John. He names Mary and Martha and Lazarus, but he does not mention Simon the leper. He also names Judas. John informs us that it was Judas who protested, apparently stirring up his fellow disciples. John also provides the motive for Judas's protest. Judas was the treasurer of the group, and he's accustomed to helping himself to some of the funds in his possession. Now, so there's, John has a different tack. He features different people than Matthew does. But I want you to consider the relationship between Matthew 26, those five verses, the first five, and verses 6 through 13 from Matthew's perspective. Then we're going to talk about John's perspective. I didn't read all the John verses, but you got to read those for yourself. In Matthew, Jesus tells us his disciples, tells his disciples that he'll be crucified in just two days during Passover. No reaction from the disciples is recorded either by John or excuse me, by Matthew or any of the other gospel writers. No reaction. The disciples seem oblivious to what lies ahead. But then we read in the following verses about a meal, right, that occurred several days earlier, a meal which Jesus and his disciples attended. A woman takes, right, this occasion to worship and adore Jesus by anointing him with expensive fragrance. The disciples are indignant, they're incensed, protesting this money could have been used, you know, uh, uh, in a better way for the poor. What better use could this fragrance have. Who's more worthy of this extravagance than Jesus? And yet the disciples are angry with her for being wasteful. Okay? Jesus sees more than just an, this whole thing is just an act of adoration in, in what this woman has done. Don't gloss over that. He sees preparation for his burial four days before he speaks to his disciples concerning his death. This woman, Mary, seems to know what is ahead. I think that's significant. Now, Matthew accounts provides us with one connection between verses 1 through 5 and verses 6 through 13. One connection there. John's account provides us with a second. Matthew focuses on Mary, although she's unnamed in his account. Jesus' prediction of the manner and timing of his death just two days away seem to have little impact on the disciples. They're not quite connecting the dots. Maybe it just goes over the head. Mary seems to be listening more intently. She was preparing him for burial, and Jesus commended her worship. Pay attention to that. 
Things are just going over these guys' head, or they're just aloof to things, but not Mary. She's sitting up and paying attention. It's a big deal. When we come to the account of his anointing in John's gospel, we find that it was Judas who protested regarding the waste. It's actually Judas. This precious substance he's all concerned about. How fitting that it was Judas who objected. He believed that Jesus wasn't worthy of such extravagant worship. Mary believed that he was worthy. The disciples foolishly joined with Judas in protest. We now see that money was more important to Judas than Jesus was. To Mary, Jesus was worthy of her most precious possession. Mary was right. Careful, careful. Drawing the truth out of the text. Be careful that money is not more important than Jesus. Let's keep going because there's a deal in the, in the works. A real deal. Verse 14, 15, and 16 in Matthew 26. Look. Then one of the twelve, one of the, the one named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and he said, What will you give me to betray him into your hands? So they set out 30 silver coins for him. And from that time on, Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. And this is significant. Reading only Matthew, you might wonder what the connection is between verses 1 through 13 and verses 14, 15, and 16. Because thanks to John and his gospel, we know what the connection is actually. Judas and Mary are the keys to this text. Judas and Mary. I don't know if you thought through that. Mary represents the godly response to Jesus and to his predictions regarding his death. She, unlike Peter, you know, who speaks before he thinks, acts before he really thinks about it sometimes. She doesn't resist his death. Peter resists. Hey, no, no, Jesus, no way. What are you thinking? You can't do that. Remember, Jesus says, get behind me. You're acting like Satan. Mary prepares him for his death and burial. Judas does not consider Jesus worthy to follow any longer. And so for a few silver coins, he will betray him. And he does this with a kiss. It's a mock. It's an act of love and devotion, but it's a mocking act of love and devotion. So after reading verses 3, 4, and 5 of Matthew 26, you can see how Judas would appear to be the perfect solution to the Jewish leader's dilemma. Judas was one of the intimate followers of Jesus so he could provide them with an ideal place and time to seize Jesus privately by stealth, it says. He was angered by the waste, the precious perfume, or the money that it could have produced if sold. He would have been able to steal some of that money if, um, unnoticed. Jesus' rebuke must have been the icing on the cake for him. If he couldn't get the money the way he normally did by stealing it from the bag he kept as a treasure, then he's going to get it from the enemies of Jesus who would pay well for his betrayal. So the deal was struck, a deal with the devil himself. John says in John 13, 1 and 2, he says, just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that his time had come to depart from the world and to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now 
loved them to the very end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, that he should betray him. For 30 silver pieces of silver, Judas would give these leaders inside information. Can you imagine the relief and the joy that the Jewish leaders feel when Judas came to them with his offer of betrayal? Now, go to verse 17, 18, and 19 of Matthew 26. It says, Now on the first day of the feast of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Where do you want us to prepare for uh, you to eat the Passover? He says, Go into the city a certain man and, uh, to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My time is near. I will observe the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus has instructed them, and they prepared the Passover. Without further revelation, you might think that the end is near for Jesus, nearer than he prophesied, because according to Matthew in his bare bones account, the disciples know it's, it's time for them to observe the Passover with Jesus, and they didn't know where it will be, so they need to make the necessary prep. Matthew simply tells us that Jesus instructs them to go. Certain guy, here it is. It's kind of a bare bones account. Matthew leaves us kind of holding our breath on purpose. Like, what's going to happen here? If you don't have the other gospels, what's going to happen? Wondering if Jesus is going to be arrested. Thankfully, we're given a much more detailed account by Mark. Mark gives us the details in chapter 14, verses 12 through 16. As always, Jesus carefully made the necessary preparations. Now, these details are a big deal. And then Luke throws some stuff in there. The preparations to assure that his purposes will be accomplished. Mark informs us that Jesus told only two of his guys how to prepare for the Passover. And thanks to Luke, Luke 22, 8, we know that one of these is not Judas. Because if Judas would have known, he could have really messed things up. So the two disciples are Peter and John, they're his closest guys. So Jesus had carefully prearranged the Passover, and you can read all the details in Mark. Even Peter and John didn't know where they were going to go ahead of time. They, get, they meet this guy carrying water. Was this by previous arrangement or providence? We're not told. Jesus is in control here. He's in charge. The two disciples are told to follow this guy. Go to this place where he's taking the water. Was it the water for the disciples' feet to be washed? We don't know. But inside, they would meet the owner of the house and on and on. It's amazing. It, it all prevents Judas from slipping out and revealing the place where they would privately gather because Judas doesn't know. Because Jesus is in control here. So then when you go to verse 20 through 25, read this, verses 20 through 25 in, in Matthew chapter 26. Look what happens. When it was evening, he took his place at the table with the 12. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They became greatly distressed. It stresses them out, right? And each one of them began to say, surely not I, Lord, underline that word Lord. He answered, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will, be, will betray me. The son of man will go as it is written about him. Woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would be better for him that he had never been born. 
Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi, underline that. Jesus replied, You've said it yourself. Seems like it's a big deal. How could Judas be anything but uneasy about the relationship now? He had good reason because Jesus knew from eternity who would betray him. How Judas must have dreaded looking Jesus and his, and his guys in the eye, knowing he had agreed to betray them all. But he's got to hold out till he can discern a favorable time to hand Jesus over to, to the enemy. And this could only be done by remaining among the guys. So unlike Mark, Matthew keeps us in suspense. We don't know exactly how it's going to all go, wondering what's going to come of all these things. If we had known the outcome, we should be wondering if Judas would have known and revealed the time and the place in the gathering for Passover. In the midst of the meal, Jesus drops a bomb, right? Shakes all the guys up, everybody. Judas knows he's the betrayer, and now he seeks to learn whether Jesus knows or not. Surely not I, Rabbi. It's a subtle change from the disciples. Surely not I, Lord. In a conversation that the others somehow didn't hear, or at least they didn't grasp it all, Jesus clearly indicates to Judas, he's going to betray him. And, he, and wow, he issues a warning to him regarding the eternal consequences of his actions. Look at verse 24 of Matthew 26. The Son of Man will go as it is written about him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed, it will be far better for him if he had never been born. Once again, Matthew kind of keeps us in suspense. He doesn't tell us how Judas responded. He simply goes on to describe the significance of the Lord's death at Passover. But John gives us a little bit more information. John 13, 26 Jesus replies, he says, it's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread after I dipped it in the dish. Then he dips uh, the, the piece of bread in the dish and gave it to Judas Iscariot, Simon's son. After Judas took the piece of bread, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're about to do, do quickly. And then in parentheses, none of those present at the table understood why Jesus said this to Judas. Some thought that because Judas had the money box, Jesus was telling him, to buy whatever they needed for the feast or to give them something to the poor. Judas took the piece of bread and went out immediately. Now it was night. This is a little commentary by John. After the, the fact, he connects all the dots and he says, this is what was going on. So for Matthew's account, we're left in doubt. What becomes of Judas after the Lord's shocking revelation? From John's gospel, we know Jesus gave Judas' permission to leave. Notice that? Judas, Jesus gives Judas permission to leave and to get on with his mission. Judas can't get out of there fast enough. Don't miss the significance here of what we just read. Jesus' revelation to Judas, at least, of the identity of his betrayer forced him and the Jewish leaders to revise their plan. You get that? Jesus is in control of the plan, not them. They had earlier resolved that the arrest and the murder of Jesus would not be during the feast. Now, Judas enables them to achieve their goal of arresting Jesus. It's going to have to be now during the feast. Judas can't ever go back 
to Jesus and his inner circle. What's the meaning? Look at verse 26 through 29 now. While they're eating, Jesus takes the bread. After giving thanks, he breaks it, right? Give it to the, he gives it to the disciples. He says, take, eat. This is my body. Think back to Mary and his body. And after taking the cup and giving thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, this is, for this is my blood, the blood of the covenant, that promise, that new promise that's poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you from now on, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. So Jesus was the Passover lamb. Verses 26 through 29 explain the significance of Jesus's death. At just the right time, Passover. And the Passover lamb, you know that story, leaving Judas behind. So Matthew turns to Jesus, who's the true focus of the text. Jesus is the Passover lamb, the one symbolized by the lamb sacrificed at the first Passover just before the Israelites leave Egypt. He's the one foretold by Isaiah. His death has to take place during Passover. Because he's the true Passover lamb. Matthew does not go into lots of detail, but he does give us the essentials. Jesus gave the disciples bread, symbolized his sinless body. He alone is without sin, and which makes him qualified to die for the sins of others rather for, than his own sin. The relevance of this text is when we're taking the bread at the Lord's Supper table. The bread does not symbolize the death of Jesus. The cup symbolizes Christ's shed blood in his death. The bread symbolizes the perfect body of Jesus, the perfection of his body. He is the only one who has ever been without sin. He's the unblemished, spotless, sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb. The bread is unleavened, symbolizing the sinlessness of Jesus. It's only because of his sinless perfection that he could die for the sins of others. The sinlessness of Jesus is the reason why his shed blood is precious and effective for us. Mary's act of selflessness, sacrificial worship now comes into even sharper focus, doesn't it? Mary's fragrance was to be used for the purpose of anointing and enhancing someone's body. What better body to use it on than the perfect body of Jesus? Her act of worship is a testimony to the perfection of Jesus in the human body. Her sacrificial act not only prepared Jesus' body for burial, it declares the perfection of his body as a suitable sacrifice. Wow. Then Jesus passed the cup symbolizing his blood which would be shed on the cross. The meaning and significance of this shed blood is further explained as being the blood of the covenant, the new promise, right, that is poured out from many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus' death on the cross instituted the new covenant now, fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Wow. The true Passover lamb. Matthew 26, 29. I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. We can now look back. We can see the hand of God in every piece of scripture text. It's magnificent. 
Jesus reveals his plan to die by crucifixion. At the time of Passover, the Jewish leaders resolved that he would die, but in a different way, at a different time. Who wins? <laughs> the anointing of Jesus by an unknown woman, unknown as far as Matthew is concerned, but we know her to be Mary. She's the straw that breaks the camel's back for Judas. He couldn't stand to see such extravagance, such waste, and the disciples buy into the argument. Only Mary would seem to, seem to, to grasp what this is about, to, what's, what's about to happen. And only Mary acted appropriately. Judas then, he, he goes to the Jewish leaders, he makes a deal. He gives them a way that they needed, an inside track to be able to find the right time and place to see Jesus, or to, to seize Jesus. He would betray the Lord Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. It looked like this could happen at Jesus' observance of the Passover with his disciples, but Jesus carefully eliminates all the possibilities by sending only Peter and John in such a way as to not reveal the whereabouts of the meal ahead of time. I love that. I love that. It's not going to go your way. It's going to go my way, he says. When they're all gathered at the table, Jesus shocks Judas and all the others by revealing that one of them is going to repay them. Judas not only received the word from Jesus that he's the one who's going to repay him, he, it, it sends Judas into a panic. And while the others are celebrating Passover at the first Lord's Supper with Jesus, Judas is collaborating with the Jewish leaders to bring about the arrest of Jesus. What's this got to do with me? Check it out. Here it comes. I love this part. Number one, foolish people, no matter how powerful, can set themselves against the Lord, but their schemes and opposition will come to nothing. And we live in a world that tries to manhandle and manipulate how it's going to turn out. I told you it's a war on reality. Everything is lying. Everybody thinks they're in control of something here. And I'm telling you, no matter how powerful you are, in particular, if you set yourself against the Lord God, all those schemes and all that opposition, it's going to come to nothing. That motivates me to trust Jesus. Even Paul learns it. He learns it kicking and scratching. In Acts chapter 26, he says, when, uh, when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, this is before he's Paul. Why are you persecuting me? You're hurting yourself by kicking against the goats. It's like you're kicking against spikes. It's futile. What are you doing? They'll learn, Philippians 2, 10 and 11, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everybody's gonna bow. Everybody. Just based on what we read, everybody's gonna kneel. Everybody's gonna bow. You're either gonna do it willingly or you're gonna be made to do it. Just based on the way these guys try to manipulate Jesus. Trust me, Jesus is going to win. He already has won. Even the great, powerful Nebuchadnezzar was brought to his knees before the sovereign God, acknowledging his sovereignty. This guy is like building idols to himself. 
and making everybody worship, he's brought to his knees through just driven insane. Look what he says, Daniel 4, 34. He says, but at the end of the appointed time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up towards the heaven, and my sanity returned to me. I extolled the Most High. I praised and glorified the one who lives forever, for his authority is everlasting authority, and his kingdom extends from one generation to the next. All inhabitants of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he wishes with the army of heaven and with those who inhabit the earth. No one slaps his hand and says to him, what have you done? You think people are in control of this pandemic? Or is it God who's in control of all of this? Matthew begins by creating some tension, doesn't he? Matthew gives his account without connecting all the dots at first. We're tempted, I think, to think that this is just a sequence of interesting but unrelated events. That's not the way it is, is it? What does this have to do with me? The story of our lives can tempt us to see the various episodes and chapters of our lives as random or haphazard. It's not so, is it? Not what the truth says. Some events can even be, uh, appear to be contrary to God's purposes for our lives. It's not so. The dots don't seem to connect sometimes. But I assure you that there will be a day when you'll be able to connect the dots clearly. Just don't wait. Judas is not granted the spotlight, is he? It is Jesus who's in the spotlight and this woman in the text who makes the right choice to worship him as worthy, bestowing on him her finest gifts. Why is it that we hold back our finest gifts and possessions thinking somehow that there's a better use for them than the worship of the Lord? Don't do that. In this story, who would you rather be? One of the disciples or Mary worshiping at the feet of Jesus. Number three, who had the greater insight into Jesus' words and Jesus' death? The person who spent the time at Jesus' feet, giving her most expensive possession. Number four, we can't read any one passage or book in isolation. You gotta read the whole Bible. You gotta read the whole Bible can't just leave pieces out. Look how it's connected. Oh, I just want to, I want to motivate you. I want to drive you to spend more time in God's word. All of these are shocking in 29 verses. It's shocking to me. It shakes me to my core. It makes me pay attention to the things I'm singing, that's for sure, and how I worship. Father in heaven, thank you for the moments that we spend together like this. Motivate us, change us, Light a fire under us, Lord. We want to be more like Mary and spend time at your feet. Help us to read all of the scriptures. I'm so appreciative, Lord, that you're sovereignly in control and all the dots are connected, even if I can't find a way to connect them. Help me to look at every single thing in my life and how purposeful it is in your Sovereignty, Lord, the Bible is about you. It's a story of revealing who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Have a great day, you guys.
Thank you for listening to the Bale Christian Church Podcast. If you have any questions, would like more information about our church, or would like to see the video cast of this message, please visit our website at www.balechristian.com.